This is the California Slap Law Podcast, Episode 5. Welcome to the California Slap Law Podcast. California's slap law was a great idea, but it can be a minefield for the uninformed. To guide you through that minefield, here's your host, from the law firm of Morrison Stone, Aaron Morris. Welcome to the fifth episode of the California Slap Law Podcast. I am Aaron Morris, a partner with the Southern California law firm of Morris & Stone. It was a great week over here at Morris & Stone. We were retained to handle three very interesting anti-slap matters and were consulted on a number of others. And what I'm seeing is that more and more often we're asked to opine on cases where the potential client or maybe an attorney thinks they may be involved with a slap, but it turns out not to be a slap. And the reason they usually think it's a slap when in fact it isn't is usually because they're looking at the defendant's motivation for bringing the action. Typically, a defendant gets sued out of retaliation for something he did, and he thinks it's a slap because he knows the plaintiff is only suing him to try to get back at him. It's not a slap just because the basis of the lawsuit is improper, whatever the motivation might have been. Still, I find this very encouraging because even though the attorneys and the potential clients bring us slap cases that we determine aren't really slap cases, it shows that they're finally thinking in those terms. And from a business standpoint, it still works out for us because the clients usually end up hiring us to handle the case in any event. So so it all works out, and I'm glad that people are thinking in those terms. So let's get to this week's topic. We're coming up on mid-year of 2014, so I decided for this show we'd take a look at some of the important anti-slap cases that have been decided so far this year. And the first case we're going to take a quick look at really has no particular anti-slap significance. Uh, It came out in January of 2014, and the only reason I offer this case is because it so beautifully illustrates the frustration of the appellate courts with the abuse of the anti-slap appeals. The case is Moriarty versus Larimar Management Corporation. It's out of the first district. It was a landlord-tenant case, and here's the quick facts of the case. The plaintiff, Moriarty, had been evicted from his apartment. He then sued for breach of the warranty of habitability, and he complained about all the harassment he had received at the hands of the landlord. And he attached the eviction complaint as an exhibit. So the landlord, of course, said, aha, Moriarty attached the unlawful detainer complaint. So he's obviously suing because we sued him. Uh, That's our right of redress. We have the right to sue him, to evict him. So this is clearly a slap. And the landlord brought an anti-slap motion on that basis. Now, the trial court looked at it and denied the anti-slap motion. And here's what the judge put in his ruling. Quote, The court concludes that the moving party failed to carry its burden to show that the plaintiff's complaint arises out of protected activity. We went through this complaint in detail, trying to see how this might be protected activity. The drafters of the complaint did an excellent job in making sure that this basically is an action that arises out of the alleged breach of warranty of habitability, and I couldn't find anything else in the complaint. End quote. So the judge obviously gave it some thought. Yes, the eviction action was attached to the complaint, but the complaint was not based on that action. But the landlord was unconvinced. The landlord appealed the denial of the anti-slap motion. And here is the very first paragraph of this reported decision. Again, this is quoting from the Court of Appeal. Another appeal in an anti-slap case. 
Another appeal by a defendant whose anti-slap motion failed below. Another appeal that, assuming it has no merit, will result in an inordinate delay of the plaintiff's case and cause him to incur more unnecessary attorney fees and no merit it has. Is that proper English? No merit it has? Anyway, that's what the court said. We thus affirm, concluding, as did the trial court, that plaintiff's lawsuit is not based on protected activity. So the the Court of Appeal wasn't buying it at all. But here's how the landlord tried to save the anti-slap motion on appeal, and here's the court's response. Because we conclude that landlord has not met its burden under the first step of the anti-slap analysis, we do not even reach step two. That said, we have one observation on the subject based on landlord's final argument that Moriarty's claims are barred by the doctrines of claim and issue preclusion. The argument is, is as follows. Here the court is quoting from the brief of the landlord. The complaint in the eviction alleged that landlord had complied with all applicable requirements of the rent ordinance. As such, the issues raised in the complaint concerning possession were at issue in the eviction proceeding and were accordingly adjudicated against plaintiff when the court entered a judgment for possession against him. We are nonplussed. You're in trouble when the court says we are nonplussed. So the Court of Appeal upheld the denial of the anti-slap motion. The second case was published less than a month ago at the time I'm recording this. Not sure I'm getting this pronunciation right, but it's Schwartzbird, B-U-R-D, Schwartzbird versus Kensington Police Protection and Community Services District Board. This one's out of the first appellate district. Now, I picked this case because it included a discussion of CCP section 425.17, and that's a section that doesn't come up a lot, at least in my practice. The facts of Schwartzbird are pretty convoluted, but I'll keep them as simple as possible. Kensington is an unincorporated community just north of Berkeley. But rather than to contract with local police departments like a lot of unincorporated communities do, Kensington maintains its own police department via the Kensington Police Protection and Community Services District, sort of like a water district, but for police. So I'm going to refer to that as the police district. The police district is governed by a board of directors with five directors. With me so far, we've got a police district governed by a board of directors, and there's five directors on the board. So in July of 2012, the board was going to have a meeting. And one of the items that they put on the agenda was whether to give the police chief a raise. But here's where the facts get really detailed uh, about the manner in which the meetings can be extended. But here's all you really need to know. The board meetings are supposed to end, according to their own rules, the board meetings are supposed to end no later than 10 o'clock. But there is a certain vote requirement that can take place to extend meetings beyond 10 o'clock. There's a certain procedure. They have to have a supermajority just to extend a meeting past 10 o'clock. So at the board meeting, after that 10 o'clock cutoff, three of the five directors voted to give the police chief a raise, and they also voted at the same time to give him a $17,000 retention bonus. So for whatever reason, certain members of the community didn't like that, so they filed a petition seeking a writ of mandate to enjoin the raise and that retention bonus. The petitioners claim the raise must be enjoined because, number one, the vote was not proper. They claim that they didn't follow the procedure to move the meeting beyond 10 o'clock. And two, the agenda item had not properly identified that in addition to giving the chief a raise, the board was also going to consider that retention bonus. So those two items, vote was improper and there was nothing in the agenda about the retention bonus. So the police district votes to give the chief a raise. Petitioners file a writ of mandate to stop it. And there's one more important fact that you have to keep in mind for this. The petition named as respondents the police district itself and the three board members who had voted for the raise. 
That's a key point for the analysis. So the petitioners filed their petition for writ of mandate against the police district and the three individual board members. How do you think the police district and the three individual board members responded? Well, since this is a podcast about anti-slap motions, you would be correct in assuming that they responded with an anti-slap motion. Now, this one smacks of being a slap on so many levels. The conduct being complained of occurred at a meeting authorized by law, so that certainly is a protected activity. And it involved the voting process, another protected activity. And the petitioners are bringing this action because they want to prevent the respondents from engaging in these protected activities. It's certainly sounding like a slap. Well, the trial court did not see it that way and denied the anti-slap motion. And the basis upon which the trial court denied the anti-slap motion was because of Section 425.17. The court never even decided if the petition had any merit because it held that the petition didn't even fall under the anti-slap statute due to Section 425.17. 425.17 contains a public interest exception. Here's what section 425.17 says. I'm going to paraphrase this a little so it isn't a bunch of code sections. 425.17 says the anti-slap statute does not apply to any action brought solely in the public interest or on behalf of the general public if all of the following conditions exist. Now, here's the conditions that have to exist for 425.17 to apply. If the plaintiff does not seek any relief greater than or different from the relief sought for the general public, that's number one. Number two, the action, if successful, would enforce an important right affecting the public interest. And number three, private enforcement is necessary and places a disproportionate financial burden on the plaintiff in relation to the plaintiff's state in the matter. This last element is what I called having some skin in the game, but not too much skin. In other words, if a developer sues a city to enforce a zoning ordinance, that could conceivably benefit the general public. But if the developer is suing because the city is refusing to allow its project and it will make millions if it does, then that is not really being done for the common good. It's being done for the good of the developer. So the trial court's denial of the anti-slap motion made some sense in light of 425.17. Think about it. If the police district did violate the rules by having the meeting after 10 o'clock, and if the police district did violate the rules by failing to promptly list the topic on the agenda, then the petitioner should be free to petition to get those situations corrected. So did the Court of Appeal agree with the trial court? Actually, not at all. Here's what the Court of Appeals said about the trial court's reliance on Section 425.17. Assuming the first condition of Section 425.17 subdivision B is satisfied here, we conclude petitioners cannot satisfy the second prong because their claims do not operate to enforce an important right affecting the public interest, nor, if successful, would they confer a significant benefit on the general public or a large class of persons. Petitioners had set forth lofty public policies such as protecting the Brown Act and enforcing the the police board's own rules, but the Court of Appeal was not impressed with those decisions. And this was actually kind of humorous. They were saying that, well, this this is really an important public policy because we have to help to enforce the Brown Act. It turns out that the Brown Act had been suspended in 2012 by a vote of the legislature. Who knew? Apparently not the ACLU because it was the ACLU that had filed a amicus brief on that basis claiming that the Brown Act had to be protected, and yet it wasn't even in effect. And as to the police board's own rules about the 10 o'clock cutoff, the Court of Appeals said, rule or not, how does that benefit the public? That was kind of an interesting thought, and I actually agree with this position. The court was saying, 
Yeah, we see in the rules that they're supposed to cut it off by 10 o'clock. Now, actually, the court found that they'd followed the procedure. I was trying to skip this whole issue, but it's actually kind of funny. They took a vote at 945, and they didn't have the supermajority to continue the meeting. Uh, so that was an invalid continuance. But at 10 o'clock, they took another vote, and that time everybody voted unanimously to continue the meeting. So they actually did comply with the rules, and they actually did do a proper vote to extend the meeting past 10 o'clock. But regardless of that fact, the court says it's not really a public interest to cut off meetings by 10 o'clock. How does the public benefit from that? So even if it is in the in the rules of the police district, it's not necessarily for the public benefit. So after going through this reasoning, the Court of Appeal disregarded Section 425.17 and did a straight 425.16 analysis and found that the special motion to strike should have been granted. Now, it was kind of a strange ruling because the Court of Appeal reversed the trial court and ordered that the anti-slap motion be granted. That's not the strange part. That was actually pretty well reasoned. Uh, But it was strange because the court tore apart every claim and said the petition had no chance of prevailing and yet and granted the special motion to strike, but then allowed the petition to go forward against the police district. And here is how the court ended the decision. As indicated above, our holding does not apply to the board itself, as we agree with the San Ramon opinions observation that as to the board's substantive action in the present case, there is nothing about the decision qua government action that implicates the exercise of free speech or petition. However, in light of the fact that we have concluded that petition lacks merit, the viability of the instant suit is questionable at best. So they basically found there was no basis for the action, but let it go forward. Now, speaking of Section 425.17, let's jump back to January of 2014 for a case called Torgamen versus Nelson and Kennard. Might be Kennard. The facts of this case are pretty simple. The plaintiff bought a Dell computer. The plaintiff did not make all the payments for his brand new Dell computer. Dell's collection agency aggressively pursued collection of the money owed for the Dell computer. Plaintiff didn't think much of that, so he brought what the court colorfully referred to as a putative class action against Dell and the collection agency for violation of the Fair Debt Collection Practices Act. So the defendants responded with an anti-slap motion. Surprise, surprise. The plaintiff said, anti-slap motion? What's an anti-slap motion? Holy crap, I could get stuck paying all of their attorney's fees. So the plaintiff promptly dismissed his putative class action, and defendants nonetheless brought a motion for attorney's fees. As you know, when a plaintiff dismisses an action in the face of an anti-slap motion, the court loses jurisdiction to decide that motion. But the court can still award attorney's fees. So to determine if attorney's fees are warranted, the court still looks at whether it would have granted the motion had it retained jurisdiction to do so. Now, in fighting the motion for attorney's fees, the plaintiff put all his eggs in one basket. His only argument was that his action against these debt collectors was exempt under Section 425.17. He pointed out that his complaint had not sought any damages for himself, only injunctive relief against the defendants. The trial court, however, found that Section 425.17 did not apply because plaintiff had failed to prove the three elements. That's important in a minute. The trial court denied that 425.17 applied because the plaintiff had not proved these three elements. For example, the trial court said the plaintiff had produced no evidence of the financial burden this litigation would impose on him relative to his stake in the matter. That was actually kind of odd. Really, Judge? 
He's suing for injunctive relief to stop these bill collectors from behaving in the manner they're behaving. He's not seeking any damages for himself. How is he not taking on the bulk of the financial burden? Even if he was doing it improper, he's still investing his own time. If he's doing it through an attorney, then he's clearly paying the bills for this action. So I think that that element was clearly met. Do you really need evidence of that? Isn't it enough that he's bringing the action? Well, anyway, the trial court granted the motion for attorney's fees and awarded $11,000. Did you hear that? The attorney's fees were $11,000. Those of you who run to court and seek $100,000 should take note. So anyway, the Court of Appeal reversed that award of attorney's fees. And here is the important takeaway from this case. The Court of Appeal in Torgaman versus Nelson and Kennard stated, to determine whether Torgaman's lawsuit met the provisions of Section 425.17, we rely on the allegations of the complaint because the public interest exception is a threshold issue based on the nature of the allegations and scope of relief sought in the prayer. If a complaint satisfies the provisions of the applicable exception, it may not be attacked under the anti-slap statute. The Court of Appeal went through each of the requirements of Section 425.17 and found that those requirements were met by the allegations of the complaint. So the Court of Appeal took a very different approach than the trial court. The trial court had said, well, if you're going to claim this is, is an exception under 425.17, put on your evidence. Oh, you didn't put on your evidence, so I'm going to award attorney's fees. The court of Appeal said, no, 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 you don't, have, you don't even have to put on evidence. You just look at the allegations of the complaint. So there you have a couple of very interesting cases interpreting Section 425.17. And we're going to conclude with the case of Roger Cleveland Golf Company versus Crane and Smith. Roger Cleveland Golf Company versus Crane and Smith, which is an April 2014 decision out of the 2nd District. This one has a really convoluted set of facts, too, but they can be summarized as follows. The plaintiff and defendant had been in business for many years but when defendant did not renew the contract, plaintiff sued, claiming it held certain trademark rights. Plaintiff lost the trademark case, and defendant sued plaintiff and its attorneys for malicious prosecution. Now, the use of uh, the terms defendant and plaintiff is getting a little confusing at this point, so I'll refer to them as the golf company and the attorneys. So the golf company sued the attorneys on the other side for malicious prosecution. The attorneys filed an anti-slap motion, and they claimed two things. They said, well, first of all, you just can't state a claim because the malicious prosecution action was barred by the statute of limitations. You waited more than a year to uh, bring this action. And the golf company could not meet the second prong of the anti-slap statute, the attorneys claimed, because it could not show the attorneys had acted with malice. Now, there's a couple of things that make this case interesting. Is the statute of limitations on a malicious prosecution action told during the time that the underlying action is being appealed? Think about it. One of the elements of a malicious prosecution action is that the defendant in the underlying action prevailed in that action on the merits. If the verdict from the underlying action is on appeal, then can you really say that the defendant has prevailed on the action? For its part, the trial court concluded that the appeal was irrelevant and did not toll the statute of limitations. The trial court said, well, a malicious prosecution action requires that the defendant prevailed. But the verdict from the trial court is proof of that, regardless of whether an appeal is subsequently taken. Therefore, the trial court granted the anti-slap motion because the golf company could not possibly prevail since its action was barred by the statute of limitations. It had waited too long to bring the action. But the Court of Appeal did not agree. Here's what it said. 
and this is really interesting because just something that hasn't come up in my practice, a cause of action for malicious prosecution accrues upon entry of judgment in the underlying action in the trial court. The statute of limitations begins to run upon accrual and continues to run until the date of filing a notice of appeal. The statute is then told during the pendency of the appeal because the plaintiff cannot truthfully plead favorable termination of the prior action, which is an element of the malicious prosecution cause of action. At the conclusion of the appellate process, that is, when the remitted are issues, the statute of limitations recommences to run. So the Court of Appeal lays it all out, basically says, yes, you have to have you have to allege and show that you successfully prevailed in the underlying action, but you can't really do that if it's still on appeal. So that tolls your malicious prosecution action. So pop the champagne corks for the golf company, right? The malicious prosecution action was not barred by the statute of limitations, and therefore the anti-slap motion should not have been granted. Well, the Court of Appeal giveth and the Court of Appeal taketh away. The Court of Appeal held that even though the trial court was wrong about the malicious prosecution action being time barred, the anti-slap motion was nonetheless properly granted because the golf company had not presented sufficient evidence of malice. The attorneys were wrong in thinking there was a basis for a trademark, but there was nothing to show they had filed the action out of malice. Well, the strumming guitars tell us that this is the end of another edition of the California Slap Law podcast. I filled out the paperwork to get this podcast approved for MCLE credit. Then I realized that the bar probably won't sit and listen to all these episodes, so I sent the episodes out to be transcribed. I found this amazing transcriptionist on Fiverr.com. She has three of the first four episodes already done, so I should get the application out this week. I'll let you know how it goes. Until next time, have a great week, and try not to slap anybody. So I'm relatively new to this podcasting thing. I I now have a playlist that I listen to both for the information the shows provide and because I want to hear how they put their shows together so I can improve on my own. I have a musical intro and outro to my podcast just because everyone else does. I like the music. Uh, The one thing I did different was to use some mellow music. It's like this rule in podcasting that no matter what your podcast is about, you need to use heavy metal for the intro and outro. It's like Thank you so much for joining me today on Crocheting with Kathy. And then she cues the music, and it's Ozzy Osbourne with Welcome to the Jungle. Anyway, if you're interested in law firm marketing, there are a couple of podcasts that I think you should check out if if you're not listening already. One is called JD Blogger, and the other one is Legal Marketing Made Easy. JD Blogger and Legal Marketing Made Easy, just a couple that I listen to. And on the topic of law firm marketing, check out my own website on that topic at yourownlawfirm.com yourownlawfirm.com. Thanks. Have a great week.